Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Vicky Riley who is the Marketing, Events and Sales Support Manager at Publishing Scotland which is the trade and network body for Scottish publishing. Vicky has worked for nearly 20 years in the book industry, first as a bookseller then in the sales and marketing departments of Mainstream Publishing, Mercat Press and Berlin Limited where she was also a member of the editorial board. And in 2020 she published her first book the Beatles 101, A Pocket Guide in 101 Moments, Songs, People and Places. Vicky, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you for having me. This is, this is going to be good fun. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I have to say, you know, if we start with, you know, I mentioned the fact that you brought out your first book last year and I read it ahead of the podcast, not because I thought I should do the homework, because as a Beatles fan, I wanted to read it and I did get in touch with you to say, I just thought it was wonderful. I think as a Beatles fan, I loved it. But I think if anybody who is just coming to, to the band fresh of any age, it's the perfect guide because it, I mean, it just gives you that history, but in really little chunks that are just wee gems, but it just kind of fills in the whole history of this remarkable band. My, my sister, she, she calls it like, she says it's like, we did in the anthology documentary series, which which I think is like cool. <laughs> I'll take that. Because <laughs> <laughs> what I mean, what I think as well, because you know, you break it down into one hundred and one, as you say, moments, songs, people, people, and places, and go through the chapter, the whole history of the band. You know, the four members of the band, but also there's a whole series of chapters on the fifth Beatle. You know, various people that were influential. But what struck me, and you have a wee bibliography at the back of other books. You've kind of done all the work for us because I'd imagine the amount of reading that you had to do to write this book must have been extraordinary. Well, I mean, not all of that reading was done when I was writing it. Like a lot of the reading that I've been doing about the Beatles has been going on for years and years since I've started, you know, getting into the Beatles. There's a few books in the in there that, that I haven't read for a long time, as well as books that I have read more recently when I was writing it. But, you know, as a Beatles upset, I'll never get bored of reading a book about the Beatles. Like any which way you can find a, a new angle or, or whatever on telling the story, I'll, I'll probably be ordering that book. Well, that's what I think is the success of this book, because I'd imagine, I mean, I, I work beside a, a guy who is a complete Beatles obsessive as well. You know, for example, if when a music magazine would bring out the same magazine, but four different covers with the four, John, yeah. Paul, George and Ringo, he would buy all four magazines that level. But I think even for someone like him, it's like, he would immediately pick that book up because he would just want to read, you know, remind himself of everything that he knows, but also find wee bits that maybe he doesn't know. And I think that's, that's yeah. what works so well. I mean, it's not, I know it's not like a definitive book. I know it's not, like I would never ever compare myself to like somebody like Mark Lewison or Hunter Davies or anybody like that. Like I know what it is. It's like a, it's a stocking filler toilet book, I suppose. <laughs> you know, one that fans that do know about the Beatles will dip in and out. But yeah, for new fans to sort of get like the sort of greatest hits of their story, really. I'm not under any illusion that huge fans like me or you would learn anything that new from the book. But maybe just getting reminded again about little details or something like that. You just sort of go, oh, yeah, because you do forget an awful lot of your knowledge sometimes until you're reminded about it. And 
I did find that when I was writing it as well. When I was doing the reading, I was like, God, yeah, I totally forgotten about that. So it was it was really fun to do. I kind of did it on a whim, I suppose, because <laughs> I wasn't planning on on writing it. But um, my publisher is a friend and he was somebody that I've, I've worked with in publishing for a long time. And he just kept sort of saying to me, when are you going to write me a book about the Beatles? And I was always just, I just sort of laughed away. I was just like, ha ha, yeah, funny, ha ha. But then I just, because of his 101 format, uh, I thought, just just one night, just out of the blue, I was like, if I list 101 things, if I can list what the 101 chapters would be off the top of my head without looking at any books, then I'll do it. So I just opened up an Excel spreadsheet and sort of typed in what the 101 chapters would be, which pretty much are the chapters that are in the book. And I got I, I got to 101 really quite easily. And I was like, well, I could do this. And then there was part of me that was like, oh, no, I could do this. <laughs> <laughs> then there was also a part of me that was like, well, yeah, I could do this. And I, so I thought, bugger it, let's do it. <laughs> right, right. No, I'm glad, listen, I'm glad you did. Because actually, see when you say you don't always find out something new. So just off the top of my head, there's a wee line just about Ticket to Ride, which if I had to pick one Beatles song, that would be the one, I think. That's the first song really? that, that, that hit over the three-minute mark, so I found that out. Because actually, the, the guy I was telling you about at work beside, I once told him that when I was younger, I used to think that Ticket to Ride was a Carpenter song, because that was the first version I'd heard. And uh, and I love that version as well. He looked at me with a slight level of disgust, and I think a wee bit of respect for me died that day when I told him. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, I... Because I was I was born in uh, 1979, so I've only ever lived in a Beatles world because if anybody was born after 1970, you do, you just live in the Beatles world. And so you find out about them and you hear their music, maybe not by them, and you don't even know about it. And, until, and it wasn't until I was in my early teens that I really got into them. But when I did get into them, I, I realised how much I already had heard and was up when so much of it was already familiar to me. But there were like a ton of songs that I thought were other people's songs as well. Like I heard Shirley Bassey's version of something before um, the Beatles version, just from her headlining Sunday night at the Palladium on a, sun- on, on a Sunday when it was on ITV. And <laughs> yeah, there was lo- loads of Beatles songs that I was just like, oh, that's them. And also because growing up in the 80s as well, I was familiar with Paul McCartney and George Harrison because they were both really quite big in the 80s. You know, like when George Harrison did Got My Mindset On You and When We Was Fab. I loved those songs even then, but didn't sort of put it all together. And my my mum tells me, I don't have any memory of this, but my mum tells me that me and my sister, because we're twins, she tells me that me and Gillian would sing Ebony and Ivory. (laughs) (laughs) We we would we would sing Ebony and Ivory so and I and I love the frog chorus I still do I, I have no time for people that that um <laughs> that criticise the frog chorus but and like no more lonely nights and all of Paul's big eighties songs I like I like them and then when you get into the Beatles then you you do you go off on all these wee tangents so you you start to you want to know about the Beatles contemporaries so you listen to all the all the other 60s stuff and you want to find out more about the Beatles influences so you so you go back in time and you start like listening to all the 40s 50s music that influenced them and then all of a sudden you're like just this big pop culture freak because the and the Beatles were like the the mothership that started it all (laughs) because I'm sure there's people listening that are just are probably thinking what a shame that when you and your sister were growing up 
that people didn't have mobile phones that they could have filmed that footage <laughs> oh that we could have all enjoyed now. Oh dear, we used to do uh, Prince Charming as well. We would do the dance of Prince. Oh, I think we could sing before we could talk. We used to do all the bits. My very first memory of life is singing Don't You Want Me Baby by the Human League in the stair of, of the house singing Don't You Want Me Baby. That's the, my very first memory. So I was probably always going to be a pop culture freak, maybe. Because <laughs> one of the things that struck me, because again, just when you mentioned some of the cover versions, it's worth saying to people, one of the, one of the great chapters in the book is, uh, one of the sections is, when you list just some of the cover songs, because what it does is it makes you go, it made me go and, and listen to some of the ones that I hadn't had maybe heard. And, you know, just off the top of my head, I'd written, you know, the Stevie Wonder song cover of We Can Work It Out is just amazing. Um, I love that song. I, like, I, I mean, I might even, I might even, in fact, I, I think I prefer Stevie's version <gasps> to the Beatles, which is, you know, and I, and I say that as a proper obsessive, but I think, I don't know, I think Stevie's version captures something more important and universal and joyful, even though it's a song about, uh, well, the Beatles version, it, it, it's, it's like a song, a, a row and couple song, whereas Stevie sort of elevates it into something much bigger than that, I think. Yeah, and I think, I think once you've finished listening to this podcast, people should go and listen to that. And the last thing I was just going to say just now, and it's always a, a thing that I've always said, I'm, I'm sure I've said it on the podcast before, that people who don't like the Beatles must have their ears painted on. <laughs> I just, like, I can understand folk that say, oh, I'm not a huge fan of the Beatles. And you're just like, right, you're a bit weird, but fine. But like folk that just, that just blanket say, I hate the Beatles. You're just like, how can you, like, not even one song, you know? Like, it's, it just doesn't make any sense to me because there is such a rich variety of different kinds of music. So, you know, if you profess to be into music, there will probably be a Beatles song that corresponds to the kind of music that you like. You know, even, even really modern music, like dance music or whatever, you know, don't tell me that you can't hear dance music in Tomorrow Never Knows or, or something like that, or... Even, I don't know, like heavy metal music with Helter Skelter or whatever. So it's just... Well, John John Lennon uh, said that Ticket to Ride was the first heavy metal song, which, which is really funny to me. In terms of the podcast, I always like to take people on the, the literary journey of their life and take you right back to childhood. So the first question I always ask people is their favourite book from childhood. And again, like many people... I think the fact that when you, you know, you're saying me your choices, it was more than one choice, but it was quite a lot of different authors, you know, indicates the kind of difficulty that people have in trying to narrow it down to, to just one. But the, the first of the ones that you did mention was Roald Dahl. So it was, was all his books or was there any that kind of stood out for you when you were younger? Yeah, yeah, there, there are. Like the very first Roald Dahl book that I read was probably Fantastic Mr. Fox. And so he's just, he's just the author that I remember reading first even though I probably did read other books first, you know, like picture books or Dr. Zeus, I suppose, actually. Like, I didn't come from a, from a bookish family. There weren't really books in my house. My first memory of reading of, of books was my granny's house, actually, because she, she had these two books. I mean, she had all our sort of Sidney Sheldons and Catherine Cookson's and stuff like that, but I knew that they weren't for me. But she had this book of fairy tales, and she had this book of songs. It was like, it was kind of like, it looked like a hymn book in that it was sort of like cloth, but it was like old folk songs or something. And I didn't really know any of the songs, but apart from Red River Valley. So I just used to like read this and it had like the notations and stuff. And then it had the words to the song. So like, I remember singing Red River Valley all the time, just reading this book. 
But even though we didn't have books in our own house, my mum, as soon as she could, took me and Gillian to the library. So we were like library users first and foremost. We didn't actually start to like own books until later. And it was Roald Dahl. It was probably the first books that we owned. My favourite ones, like because I'm a twin, so like at birthdays or Christmas, we would get one each and we would get a different one. So my sister's favourite Roald Dahls are probably different to mine because she'll probably favour the ones that she owned over the ones that I owned. The ones that I got were the BFG and the Witches. They, they're, they're probably the, the, the two that I remember most and sort of because I, I reread them all the time as well. Like, despite the fact that we were now, like, getting books and going to the library and stuff, and what we weren't into, like, class, like classic, like, even now, classic children's books weren't a thing. Like, I've never read Anna Green Gables. I've never read Heidi. I've never read... The Railway Children or any of those books, I'm not familiar with them at all. And so it was just, I, I liked the naughtiness of Roald Dahl. <laughs> Me and Jill, we have this thing called, we, where we, we describe things as a bit BBC. Well, oh, that's a bit BBC. So we, were, we were ITV kids and uh, we just sort of viewed the BBC, even from a young age, as quite goody-goody. I love the BBC now, like BBC4 on a Friday night, music documentaries, brilliant. But I've, I've always sort of had that notion of, sort of naughty books and goody-goody books. And we were never into, like, the goody-goody books. So, like, Famous Five and all that, we were just, like, not interested. So I would rather reread the BFG and the Witches rather than, you know, like, read, like, the, all the, the sort of classics and things now. And that sort of probably made us, after we were getting a little bit too old for Roald Dahl, we went to American authors rather than British authors because <laughs> they were a bit BBC. <laughs> So that's why from Roald Dahl we would go to like Nancy Drew and Judy Bloom and all those kinds of things because they just felt, I don't know, just not goody-goody. Even though we weren't naughty kids or anything, we weren't bad children, but there was just just always a sense within us that like if something was a bit goody-goody, it was a bit spary. Because one of the things when you just said about how obviously every time it was a birthday, you would get one book and your sister would get the other book. I mean, effectively, it's almost like you're getting two books because I'm I'm guessing. Totally. I mean, yeah, you, you absolutely. Swap the books and you're you're reading twice as much as if if you didn't if your sister wasn't there and sharing the same birthday. Yeah, like we like she read the BFG and the Witches and I she got uh, she was the Charlie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and um, Boy his memoir which I really loved even though it was set in like a boarding school and all that kind that was really the only sort of boarding school book that I ever sort of got on with. All the sort of other ones, I was kind of just like, that's a bit BBC. <laughs> <laughs> people are going to, that, that phrase is going to stick in people's minds now and then they're going, to, some, they're going to say it and people go, what on earth are you talking about? We still use it now. Like if anything's a, a, a little bit sort of, I, I know it's, te- maybe it's terrible, but I just, I don't know, just something that, We've always just had our hackles raised when it when it's all a bit too sort of self improvement and a bit too like this is what is good for you. <laughs> see, see, it's really interesting that you say that because I remember growing up and we would probably have been a BBC family, like, and I think probably for those reasons that my mum and dad would probably have equated say the kids stuff, and there was maybe more a sense of it was a bit safer and gentler. Actually, we did watch the BBC for for kids Saturday morning, like going live and and stuff like that. See, I, I, pre- I predate that. I remember Swap Shop. <laughs> I'm a bit too young for Swap Shop. Just, <laughs> I've never, I've never seen an episode of Blue Peter or Grange Hill. I've just never. <laughs> I just That's don't ex- know what those 
I know, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? But um, no, I was all about the press gang and nightmare and stuff like that. Right, be, I'm, I said, this is going to start lots of interesting conversations with people that remember that, particularly in the, the year of just three and then four TV channels before you can just get a, I know. a multitude of, of choice. I mean, in terms of, obviously, you'd mentioned then you'd moved from Roald Dahl to Judy Bloom, But then if I can take you forward then to the kind of teenage formative years and... Again, you, ch- you changed the choice because originally you'd mentioned One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but the book that you'd mentioned that you wanted to talk about, it was a book called The Magic Christian by Terry Southern. It's a book I, I'm not familiar with, but it quite intrigues me. And what, what was it about that book that suddenly jumped to the, the front of the queue? I have a huge soft spot for Terry Southern. He's probably the only author who I've read every single thing that they've written. Because I'm, I'm a bit of a magpie reader, really. Like, I just jump from thing to thing because I'm just curious about everything. Because I kind of stopped reading fiction as a teenager. Like, when I, when I got into the Beatles when I was about 13, I just stopped reading fiction and only read books about the Beatles and the 60s and, like, non-fiction pop culture books. And um, because through the Beatles, I found out about Terry Southern because... Ringo starred in two adaptations of his novels. In fact, pop culture trivia piece of information, if you look at the cover of Sgt Pepper, Terry Southern is the only person on the cover wearing shades. So if you have a, after this, have a wee look at your Sergeant Pepper and you'll see the one guy wearing, wearing sunglasses and that's Terry Southern. That would be a <laughs> great was, quiz question. He was huge in the 60s. He was like a total mover and shaker in the 60s. And he's completely fallen by the wayside now, which is really intriguing to me. I have thoughts as to why, but so so not only was did he write novels and short stories and journalism pieces, he was also a screenplay writer as well. Like he wrote the script to Doctor Strangelove. He wrote the script to Cincinnati Kids, the first Casino Royale, Easy Rider. That was like his last big sort of hurrah was Easy Rider. Like most people probably think that that was like completely improvised, but it wasn't at all. It was a scripted film and it was Terry Southern that that wrote that screenplay. And he was just a brilliant chronicler of that American post-war cultural shift from 50s conformism to the sort of 60s counterculture thing. He was just a, a really brilliant chronicler of that period. And I think that that's one reason why he's probably fallen by the wayside because he's probably... He's so synonymous with the 60s. And you could probably say that maybe his books especially are particularly of that time. Though I was just, I was flicking through The Magic Christian just at the weekend there just to, because I've not really properly read him, like read him, read him since I was in my 20s. And I was just flicking through Magic Christian. So Terry Southern (laughs) is a brilliant satirist. That's what his, his novels are. They're satire and they're over the top and they're wild and crazy and not really for the faint-hearted. Um, if you're easily offended, Terry Southern is not for you. <laughs> so he's not he's not BBC. He is not BBC. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I've not, as I say, I've not read, I've not reread a lot of them since I was younger, but I suspect he probably wouldn't, he probably wouldn't pass muster in these in, like nowadays. And that and that's fair enough, times change and what's acceptable changes. That was his thing, though. He was always prodding at what's acceptable. That was his thing, that he always wanted to, like, push the boundaries and push people's buttons and, like, as he would say, put people on. He was very much... He used all the hipster slang and all that kind of stuff. But The Magic Christian is a book that particularly satirises 
um, consumerism um, from the 1950s into the 60s. So it's about this gazillionaire guy who pretty much spends his life proving that everybody's got their price. And uh, he just does even ever more outlandish things to show the world up for the sort of hypocrisies of it, of the social mores of the time about like common decency and what that means and all that kind of stuff. But there's a section in the book that when I was looking at it this weekend where there was a bit where he was talking about he started a newspaper called The Facts where it just plainly told the facts of all the news and it and it didn't have a letters page, it didn't have columns, it didn't have anything like that and the circulation plummeted. Nobody <laughs> wanted to buy it. But everybody was talking about it and they all thought it was some weird conspiracy. And so folk would write letters to the paper, but the letters were never printed. And so then he decided to completely change it and he just brought out a newspaper called Opinions and all he printed was the letters and columns and all that kind of thing. And he ended up being a riot with all these different factions fighting against each other. And I just, I was looking at that at the weekend and I was like, oh my God, this was like written in 1958 or, or whatever. And it could easily have been written last week, you know. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's quite that's quite spooky, actually. Because as I said to you, he's not a he's not a, an author that I'm or a writer I'm familiar with at all. And especially, you know, when I just started checking on him, and you mentioned some of the films that he had he'd written the screenplays for. The other one yeah. that he wrote, uh, which really intrigued me, and as a musical connection to it, so he wrote Barbarella, which was a kind of I think James yeah. Bond, sixties <laughs> sci-fi, and that is where. Duran Duran get their name from. Oh, of so, course. So yeah. Duran Duran is a yeah. character in the book. And you know, as many people will know from the podcast, I'm a massive Duran Duran fan yeah. from back in the day. So I was quite so I'm thinking, wow, Terry Southern probably gave them the, their name. I thought that that's quite nice. I know that's see, this is the thing. Terry Southern is one of those folk who you could do a sort of six degrees of separation to, and he'll have had something to do with the influence because as I say, in the 60s, he was everywhere. He was like totally, he was like a, a real, a main cultural mover and shaker. Like he would have been interviewed on telly and interviewed on the radio about his thoughts and stuff like that. But his slide was just quick. And I guess like when the 70s hit, folk just weren't interested in having somebody and in, in having books and, and stuff from somebody who was, he was, re- he did really go out there. That is one of the things that I like about him. I have a big soft spot for things like that are outlandish, that go over the top, that are just so ridiculous and absurd and all that. Because you have to laugh. You have to laugh at, at the world, at life, at politics, at, at yourself <laughs> and your own insecurities and all that kind of thing. Like, like I, I, f- I find absurdism and all that kind of thing comforting. And to go over the top and to like really rant and rave the more over the top it gets, the funnier it gets. And so, and then you just realise that we're all just, like, life is ridiculous. Because <laughs> one of the things you mentioned, uh, obviously at that age, you kind of stopped reading fiction and you were reading, you know, maybe when the kind of Beatles obsession took root. And that, that, even when I was reading your book, I was quite curious about that because obviously generally what happens is when you get to sort of part of forming your own identity as a teenager is almost embracing the kind of music of the time that your parents maybe say well no that's nothing like that's not as good as when we were younger and it's almost like that breakaway that even though secretly you still like the other stuff but you know it's interesting that you then because I wouldn't wouldn't imagine a lot of people your age would have been you know massive Beatles fans at that that point I never got bullied for it but um like that that would be too strong a word but certainly like folk at school thought I I was a bit weird or just 
they were just like all right okay that's what she's in like I remember like I remember somebody saying oh you even smell like a hippie or something like that like <laughs> like folk would like as I say I never got bullied or anything but they were just kind of like all right apart from my history teacher my history teacher at school was absolutely so encouraging with this love of the 60s because that was the era that he grew up in and he would regale me and my sister with stories of like when he went to see the Beatles when he went no he never went to see the Beatles but he went to see the Who and Jimi Hendrix and all that kind of stuff and he would talk to us about that and we would lap it up absolutely lap it up my dad went to see the Beatles but he doesn't remember it (laughs) which is so annoying (laughs) do you think it helped as well the fact that you were almost kind of like you you and your sister it wasn't just you on your own that you you know there was a bit of consolidation that as you say, when you're going to school and everybody's maybe liking whatever the music at the time was. But then at least then, you know, there was somebody else that kind of had that similar taste. And, and yeah, see, because I had, I had, like, my house pals, my pals that lived beside me went to a different school. They went to the Catholic school. But my home pals were my Beatle pals. Like, we spent all our spare time when we were teenagers trying to work out all the harmonies and stuff. Like, it sounds really wholesome. <laughs> we would, like, go round to each other's houses on a Saturday night and, like, have the Beatles' complete chord book in front of us and, like, just learn every single Beatles song and every single harmony and, and all that kind of stuff. That was the thing that we, <laughs> that we were doing. And then I would go into school and that is just not what everybody was doing at <laughs> the weekend. It's not something that, you know, many people your age would have gone back the way in terms of music and gone back to the, the 60s. They may have subsequently then well, they, you know, discovered see, because, that. Yeah, because the early 90s, well, it was all about grunge and dance music. And then in the later 90s, it was all about Britpop. And then when Britpop hit and they all and everybody at school started saying how much they loved the Beatles and, oh, the Beatles are this. And, and I was just like, you weren't saying that three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> But even then, I didn't really like Britpop that much. I, I kind of thought, why would I listen to that? Why would I listen to that when I could just listen to the Beatles, you know? <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't a big Britpopper. I was always the one at the, indie, at the indie disco waiting for the time where they did play the 60s stuff. Because at the indie discos, they always sort of played like a round of 60s stuff as well, as well as all the, the Britpoppy stuff. I mean, I would dance to it and all that kind of thing, but I was always like waiting for the Jackson 5 and... <laughs> So has that always been, you know, even as you as you get older, is it still always been that sixties music, predominantly the Beatles, but other sixties music rather than anything more contemporary that you? That well, you I mean, like I, I'm not just a sixties person now, like because also when I was a student, when I was at university, I started working at Virgin Megastore. That was my Saturday job while I was a student, and I all I maintained that I learned just as much in Virgin Megastore as I did at Edinburgh University. Because that, working there with all the people that worked there that were into so many different things, and they would introduce me to that. And so it completely broadened my cultural horizons even more, just as much as the stuff that I was learning about the history of literature at, at university. And so I went to the 70s and the 80s and beyond. <laughs> and even now, I might not listen to the charts and stuff, but I like to get be recommended music and stuff like I'll, I listen to six music and you know if friends recommend things to me then I'll go and, and seek them out yeah I'm always just I'm all, I'm just ever curious about music and books and art and culture and all of it I just want just want it all <laughs> <laughs> but then at the end of the day the, the fallback is still always the Beatles yeah that's like my sort of soft spot that's like my happy place is it possible for you to choose your favorite Beatles song or is that I mean that's such a difficult thing when you look at the catalogue yeah. 
I, I find it impossible to pick favourites of anything, of anything actually, just because there's just so much goodness out there. Like I found it really difficult to choose for this as well, because there are so many other things that I could have talked about. Like, I know that you're a massive fan of Catch-22. I would say if I had to choose a favourite book, it would probably be Catch-22. Um, it's probably the book that I've read and reread the most. And I, I make sure that I, I, I reread it in every decade of my life just to, to see what else I, I get from it each time. Again, I love, you know, because it's so outlandish and it's so over the top and it's just the absurdity of it. It's, that kind of thing really appeals to me. Because it was interesting, because obviously, I mean, I've told that story before about how it was all the boys in our, our English higher yeah. class that were given Catch-22 and all the girls were given uh, sons and, and lovers. That, and yeah, that's, that, that blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, and I'm so glad, I mean, I'm so glad that our teacher did that, because I think, it, as I say, it definitely just, I think it helped us all at that age in terms of, of yeah. reading. Are you, then, are, you st- are you friends with any of the, the girls that you went to school with? Do they still have such an affection for sons and lovers as you do for Catch-22? I don't know. I, I mean, I don't have, I'm not in contact with any yeah. of them. I'm only, in, I mean, I'm still in contact with one of my male friends who, and, and yeah. again, every now and again, we'll just, it'll just something will come up and we'll remember that time we were both, because it was a really good class. The teacher was really good and it was a year that uh-huh. we really enjoyed and that was one of the highlights of it. I would, I mean, it's just one of those things I'd be curious to find out if the memory of that book the girls, sons and lovers, stuck with them as much as Catch I know, I know. Yeah, because as you said, my original choice was going to be One Floor with a Cuckoo's Nest, which was the book that I did for my RPR in fifth year, which I suppose is the same thing. And that that was the book that got me reading fiction again. Again, it was 60s. <laughs> <laughs> and it was totally, like, it was completely unexpected. And I think if people read it now, they'd be really surprised by it because everybody just has in their head Jack Nicholson in the film. The book is so different. For a start, it's told by the point of view of um, God. I forgot his name. Chief. Chief. What's his name again? Oh God, I've completely forgotten the name of his character. Was it Broom? I can't remember. I can't. Oh my God, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but it's told from his point of view, like he's the narrator of the book rather than an omniscient narrator or Randall P. McMurphy being the the narrator. Though I've not read it since since then, so I don't know what how I would feel about it now. Have you yeah. read Catch Me in your teenage years? Yeah, I, I read it a couple of years ago again. And it's obviously a different experience because obviously you're much older. But then also part of it is the memory of being that 15-year-old and reading it. Yeah. Uh, but I still loved it. It's such a brilliant, brilliant book. I think I enjoyed the humour maybe more and just the kind of oh. subject matter and the sort of things that for us, not I don't know if it had been a sheltered education, but obviously maybe a book that, having grown up in Catholic education, that, that suddenly you get this book in fifth year that's subject matter that maybe we went before we were shielded from. And I think maybe the kind of more the darker the anti-war elements I was more appreciative of now. Yeah, yeah. like what I've noticed, like when I first read it, sort of in my, my, my late teens, was the funniness of it, the structure and the amazing structure and rhythm of it and the callbacks and just, I loved all that. It was amazing. And But each time I've reread it in different decades and stuff, I have noticed more the anger that underpins underpins it. And I think that's the amazing thing about satire and comedy as well. Because, I mean, anger at the craziness of the world is fairly understandable. <laughs> but to be able to channel it in such a way that brings out comedy, I fully admire that so much. But I think as well, I think, you know, like any book that you would read at different stages or decades or ages of your life, 
you will have a different perspective on it, just even from yeah. what's been going on in your own life and how you approach that book, which is always, you know, it's interesting that you are reading it in every different decade. That's a great reading experience in itself. Yeah, I mean, I'll, at some point in this new decade of mine, I'll, I'll <laughs> reread it again. <laughs> Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Vicky Riley. And Vicky, we're on to the third book choice, a book that you would recommend to anyone. And as I say, it's, it's always a difficult choice. The one that you've given me, and there's probably a kind of wee disclaimer, in fact, that, you know, there's a million one you could recommend. But the, the one you chose is The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon, I think. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his surname. Is it Cavalier? I suppose I've only ever read it, so like I always say Cavalier, but it might be Cavalier. I have no idea. That's the thing when you just read to yourself. You never really know how things are um, pronounced. <laughs> but um, I found this difficult because I love buying books for people and I love recommending books to people. I, it might be a hangover from my book selling days, but um, I find it a really satisfying thing to do. When I, when I do it, when I'm going into the bookshop to buy a book specifically for a person, I just start at A in the fiction section and go to Z. And it's, and it's about a feeling. It's about thinking of the person and, and just sort of trying to match sensibilities and, and all that kind of thing. So it's quite hard to sort of recommend a single book for everybody. And so I picked Cavalier and Clay just because I thought I've never heard anybody say they didn't like this book. And I think... It is one of those books that anybody could enjoy just because it's a book that's just got a brilliant story with characters that you'll absolutely fall in love with. This is another kind of book that I really, really like other than like wild absurdist things. It's sort of stories that go over generations and incorporate family, history, culture and social change throughout a period. So this story is really, it's from the Second World War onwards and it's about two cousins, one of whom has escaped from Nazi, well he lives in Poland but he's escaped the Nazis and he's gone to America to to live with his cousin and they both invent a comic book called The Escapist. So it's set within the, the sort of burgeoning comic book world and I'm not really a sort of superhero comic book person at all. The fact that it's based around that thing shouldn't put you off because it's about more than that. It's about the cultural changes in America in the post-Second World War phase. It's about family. It's about survivor's guilt as well because Joseph, who has escapes from the Nazis, he doesn't really quite get over the fact that he left his family behind. And Sammy, the cousin, also, he... Over this period of the book, he sort of has to come to terms with the fact that he's gay as well in a time where it was illegal and frowned upon. Even within cultural circles as well, you sort of had to, it was very a clandestine thing. And it has guest star appearances from people that actually were there at the time, like Salvador Dali and stuff like that. So it's just like a big epic tale of family and love and making sense of yourself in a world where big historical moments have really impacted on you and it's just it's just brilliant it's funny it'll make you cry and I, I would highly recommend it to anybody right I'm going to I'm going to go and read it, read it. <laughs> you mentioned about how you like buying books for people and and obviously then as you say go down 
and thinking about that specific person and what book they might enjoy. How are you in terms of the other side of the coin? And you know, for people who will give you books as, as presents. Nobody you... buys me books. <laughs> <laughs> that, Honestly, that's unless unless I give them a list, nobody. I'll buys be honest. Me I'm books. I'm about the same because because <laughs> my daughter had bought me. She'd asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and I'd said, "Well, you can get me a book." So she she'd asked me what. So she got me Hamnet, the Maggie O'Farrell's oh, book. Oh yeah, I just thought it was incredible. I always remember. There was a book back in the 80s called Spycatcher. I can't remember who wrote it now, but it was one of these... Oh, books. yeah. There was trial, was there not? Yeah, was yeah, it, it was... Banned? Well, they were trying yeah. to get it banned because it was revealing secrets of the, the British... Great secrets. Service. And it was literally an absolute doorstopper of a book, and I remember getting it for Christmas. I had expressed no interest in the case, the book, or anything of the subject matter, but I don't know if it's just because it was one of the, the best sellers at the time and my parents had got me it, and... I didn't even pretend to read it. And then years later, I'd written this book, read all about it. And it was a chart in my year of trying to read more books. And I just happened to mention just a wee throwaway line in passing about this book. And, you know, it was just, I couldn't understand why I was giving it as my present. And my mum was quite hurt when she, oh, when she no. read this. And I was saying, no, I was, you know, I liked the, the sentiment of it. But it, so it's, I think it's difficult, especially if you read a lot for people to, quite often people yeah, think, book tokens. So. Yeah. I think folk would just, I think really they worry that I might have read it already or that I have it already. And that, that's probably the reason, which is fair enough. But sometimes you just, you're kind of like, what kind of book do you think I'd like? And you just want to <laughs> see if they get you right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's for the first year ever like at Christmas there, you know that, you've probably seen it on the internet, the kind of Icelandic tradition of giving books to people on Christmas yeah, Eve. Yeah, you all applaud. Yeah, I just love that idea. So one of my daughters, her birthday's actually a couple of days before Christmas. So when we kind of met up just to see her, so I'd got everybody, like my kids and their partners and what have you, a book. would just be a wee explanation of why, to give them it all yeah. so they could have it on Christmas Eve. Uh-huh. I really enjoyed the whole thing of, for a couple of months prior to that, thinking, right, what would they like? What would he like? What would she like? And it was really, it was, yeah. it was a great thing. I know, it is, it is, I, I love it. I wish I could get paid just to do that. Like I read that Gwyneth Paltrow employs somebody to buy her her books. And I was kind of like, I'd like that job. Uh, <laughs> do you know what's funny? I wouldn't, I, I totally agree but with you. Fun. I wouldn't like, I wouldn't like somebody to do that for me. But I mean, that's just, I think that's a, that's a form of laziness to that, surely. Oh, totally. Like, I know when I read it, I was like, oh, of course, Gwyneth. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I kind of would like that job. <laughs> I mean that is yeah. I mean, I suppose that is living the dream. Then <laughs> you would spend. You would just be spending all your time in bookshops chatting to booksellers. It'd be great. The slight part of me, I always think there's a slight conceit for me of you know. I always think, well, I'll, I'll choose a book. I know what you would like, but then I'm thinking, well, you wouldn't know either. You wouldn't know what. Don't buy me books because I'll just buy them myself because I know what my tastes are. And I think I sometimes I disappoint myself sometimes by thinking that. Yeah, I know. I, I get that, but yeah, I wouldn't mind folk sort of giving it a go. <laughs> and, and tell me this: me. the other thing I was going to ask is, at Christmas time, did everyone in your family get a copy of your book? I hope you wrapped it up and gave them all a copy, or have they already bought copies of it? The great thing is, uh, well, I got I get free authors copies, and so I gave my family <laughs> the book. I didn't. <laughs> And I get, I get like, ah, I didn't know, no, they, I wouldn't have given it to them for Christmas. Though they, they all did read it for before Christmas. And they, they've all read it as well, which is lovely. So did you threaten like, to test them on it on Christmas Day or something? No, not at all. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I wasn't even expecting them to read it. I, I wasn't, cause, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been offended if they hadn't, other as well. So um, 
but I know they uh, like my mum and my dad have read it as well, and my sister as well. Because yeah. there's a sense of I I remember the first time I got a novel published, and my, it was afterwards. My mum had said she just happened to mention in passing she was just standing in the post office queue and just turned to whoever was behind her. Didn't even I don't think she even knew the woman, and just somehow turned the conversation round to say, "Oh, but and my son's just published a novel." And I think there's a real <laughs> sense of, and I'm sure like your family was the exact same because when they see you know, your name in print in this book and then the fact it's on sale and people are buying it and, you know, the reviews and stuff. There's, there's a real sense of pride in that, I think. Yeah, I think, I think that they probably are a wee bit proud. I mean, I'm kind of proud of myself, really, just particularly to write, because I'm not sure if, I mean, I would like to, but I'm not sure if I will write another one just because that was kind of the, the easiest book for me to write, really, because, you know, I've, my full-time job does take a lot out of my brain and my creative brain as well like and and so even though that book was the easiest one that I could have written it took a lot out of me I mean I don't know if it was because I wrote it during lockdown as well so maybe that was to do with it but like I found it tough going at times I'm not so I'm just not sure if I would have the mental space to write something more challenging I would would absolutely love to but I I admire people so much who have full-time jobs and write books at the same time and have families too. I mean, like, how do they do it? Because <laughs> I also think as well for people, you know, that way for anybody who's who's ever written a book. That's why I always feel as well, particularly on social media, should be positive about books. And if, if there's a book you don't enjoy, just keep that to yourself because there is such an effort yeah. into it. And any book, you always start off with that burst of enthusiasm and this is great. But there is a period within it where it's all about hard work and just getting yeah. your head down and writing it. And then finishing it and then from that you have to shape it into a book that's good enough to be published but there is that level of hard work so you you always appreciate the effort that somebody else is going to take you may not enjoy the product but that doesn't mean somebody else won't and working in publishing as well you're so aware of just the sheer number of people who are writing and wanting to get published I have read that because that is the other thing um it's not so much because I don't work for a publisher now I have a lot more general reading time like my own reading time whereas when you work in publishing you're constantly reading manuscripts the vast majority of which you're not going to publish and so a lot of your reading time is that rather than reading books for pleasure see, and, see when you worked in publishing uh-huh. was there ever when you were obviously reading manuscripts was there ever a wee thing in the back of your head thinking i don't want to be i don't want the equivalent of decca and knocking back this <laughs> <laughs> this bestseller or, or the next best thing because there's somebody who's obviously been haunted for the entirety of his life for knocking back the Beatles. I mean the publishers that I've worked for have rejected books that have gone on to be published and they did well and that's fine. The thing about like a lot of the time it's not just about the book itself that you have to think about when you're assessing a manuscript for publishing it. Sometimes it is better for a book to go to another publisher because as a publisher, you're just not going to match because there's so so many skills and things that go into publishing a book. And if everybody is on, and everybody has to be on board, and if there's a particular, if somebody in each part of the team isn't quite as enthusiastic about a book, then it's it's not it's not the best match for the writer. So I don't think so. It, it doesn't bother me if or it's not a negative thing that books have gone on to be published by other people that maybe that we as a publisher that I worked for turned down. I have to say, none of them have gone on to like make squillions and millions. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you're quite relieved about that. <laughs> so, you know, it's no, but well, actually, there's no, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that there. <laughs> there's some things that should remain top secret. <laughs> Well, I mean, in in terms of obviously from a book that you'd recommend to anyone, and then you kind of just describing the, I suppose the difficulty as well, and the challenge of every time you read something that is it something you want to publish? Is it something that you know think people might buy? If I can take you onto a book that you couldn't be paid to read again, and again, I'm guessing that's a difficult thing as a reader, but also from the kind of work you do, and you've kind of chosen rather than books that you've you couldn't be paid to read again, kind of books that you've not read and maybe aren't likely to read so it was either the Harry Potter series or Lord of the Rings which I suppose sometimes those books have been mentioned before as you read them maybe at a certain time in your life and if you don't then they've kind of passed you by. That's exactly it why would why would I read the Harry Potter books as I say like children's publishing nowadays now that I'm not a child (laughs) like I know a lot of adults that do like to read children's books and that's fair enough that's absolutely fine I'm just not one of those. So, and I've, so I've just, I've never seen the need. It's weird working in publishing and not having read the Harry Potter books though. Because I suppose there's a language in the Harry Potter books and words and particular jargon and things of the whole world that get bandied about. And I have no idea what they're talking about. And folk are like, you've never read the Harry Potter books. Like it's kind of sort of seen as a sort of like, it is considered a bit weird. <laughs> in publishing to not have read a book that is such like or books that are that were such a phenomenon but that's the thing I don't need to to read them to know about the phenomenon you know like or to understand the phenomenon so it's it's fine to for me to not read but you think as well you were maybe the age you were yeah I was too old like I was my daughter my daughter who's the the voracious reader so she was born in 92 so as those books were just coming to the fore that hit her right at the time when she'd learned to read herself and it was the first thing that was her books rather than books that we were reading to her or giving her. So yeah. maybe just been, you know, that was of her age and generations. I think you would have been running on to, as we were talking earlier on, onto books, whether it was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or whether it was... Yeah, what, when, know, I mean, when was the first Harry Potter published? I can't even remember. Was it the, was it the late 90s or the early 2000s? No, it'd have been, the, it'd have been some point in the 90s, I think. Right. Early 90s. Yeah, I was, it's just... I was never going to read a book about a boy wizard when I was, I, I, do you know, I, I mean, I might, I might not have even read them when I was that age, because again, I might have considered them to BBC. <laughs> you never know. Also, I think as well, it's interesting that you, the other one you had mentioned was Lord of the Rings. So I suppose to an extent, Harry Potter as well, obviously with wizards and the slight magic and fantasy and obviously Lord of the Rings. I mean, I'm familiar with the Lord of the Rings films, which I, I take my kids to. I never read the Lord of the Rings book. And I think from anybody who I spoke to, friends who read it when they were teenagers, so they're obsessed with it. I mean, I wouldn't even think or dream about picking it up and reading it now. Even the films, I've what I've tried to watch the first Lord of the Rings film a couple of times and I fall asleep every time. To be fair, they are uh, they are long films. There's a couple of films like that where I tend to I fall asleep like at the right at the same moment each time and I'm just like, I, I'm not the type of reader that dismisses whole genres completely. I'm not saying I would never read a fantasy book. I just don't think I would. Again, it's that that sort of, there's that jargon in that sort of world building of it all that, I don't know, it just, it just, just doesn't appeal to me as much. You'd never know, because there's just so many books that have been published and will be published that I would rather read Maybe there'll be a time in my life where I do find time to read Lord of the Rings. I just can't see it. 
I think we both know that's never going to happen, Vicky. <laughs> <laughs> but that, listen, I think that's fine because you know, as you, I mean, you'll know more than the most given the the work that you're you're involved in. How many books are published? Oh, on a yearly basis. thousands. I mean, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> you you can't even begin to. I think you just have to read the books you want to read and accept you're never going to be able to read all the books that you want to read. Yeah, and I'm quite, I'm good at abandoning books that aren't ticking my box at all. Like, I have a 60-page test, really, and if you're not grabbing me by page 60, I'll put you... Now, that doesn't mean I'll not go back to it, though, because I have read, there's been books where I was like, no, I'm not in the mood for that, and I've subsequently gone back to, and I've loved them. That's why I'm always a bit sort of like... I'm a bit reticent to sort of say that I don't like that book, even if I've read it and I've not liked it, because there might be a moment in time where it just clicks with the moment that I come to read it. And and that's happened a fair few times. So, like, I try to not say never. <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's, that question is always quite a challenging one for people because, yeah. you know, there are some people who right away they'll, they'll have a book that they just name and they just couldn't stand it but quite often people because it's such a subjective thing and as you say just because either you don't like it or at the time you don't like it you might like you know people I think are always quite reluctant just to to name and shame some more than others yeah like even with my 60 page rule like even if I if I do stop reading something by page 60 it's not because I couldn't stand it I've never not like couldn't stand a book you know that's that's quite a strong emotional reaction there's just it's just not quite working there's no book that I've just thought Jesus that is the most awful book I've ever read which is um, funny I had I think I'd mentioned it on another podcast recently I decided I was going to try and read Ulysses this year all right and just just because you mentioned your your 60 page rule so I got to page 64 <laughs> and I, I've kind of parked it just now because I as I say I read about 10 11 pages and then I got to the end of it and I thought Do you know I have absolutely no idea what I just read there I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the cultural references, and I thought I need to put that aside just now because I'm just toiling yeah. with it. I know, and, and but there will probably be a point where it just clicks. I, I read Ulysses when I was a student, and I didn't understand all of it. I finished it though, pro- maybe because I was studying, like it was it was part of my studies. But um, that, I didn't have to write an essay about it or anything. So, <laughs> so yeah. that was I think cool. to be honest, because I remember the first time I read Lanark, and I'd just done a night. I was just doing a night class at Glasgow Uni on Scottish literature and I think it really helped having to do it as a class assignment almost but then being able to go in and talk to other people and the lecturer being able to explain bits that you were maybe yeah. you didn't understand so I think that sort of that's the sort of book that I think would would help me if it was almost like yeah. obligatory to because you wanted to study it because again it was a, it's another book with lots of classical allusions and, and all that I, kind I, of stuff I and... completely I, I was completely bamboozled by them all no, but I would definitely, I would like to reread Ulysses because I think I'm a better reader now than I than I was. Like, I, th- I think the more you read, the better you get at it. It's kind, there is a sort of skill to it in a way, <laughs> which sounds, sounds weird, but... Um, well, you know, it's interesting. I, 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 was, I was listening to a podcast recently and I can't remember the guy's name, but he wrote a book last year called The Year of Reading Dangerously. And it was kind of just... Well, Andy, Andy Miller. Yeah, and on the podcast he said he... I think almost bookending his year of reading. At the start of the year, he'd read, I think, Middlemarch. And then right. at the end of the year, he'd, he'd read War and Peace, or vice versa. Whichever it was, he said he found towards the end of the year it much easier to read that bigger, chunkier classic. And mm. it was just kind of going to what you were saying is that it was almost like training his, it was almost like kind of yeah. like muscle memory to an extent. He was so used to into the way of reading and it just made it easier for him. 
And I think especially if you read widely as well, like if, if you don't stick to a certain genre or a certain kind of book or whatever, then you become used to the differences in reading. Like you, there are books that um, are more about the storytelling. There is more books that love to play with language. There's, there are books that um, where there's not much plot and it's just all about being in a character's head and have they created that character in an amazing way and all those kinds of things. And the, so the more widely read you are, then the more you become attuned to different registers in writing and the better you'll become at reading all those different registers as well. That's why I am probably a bit of a magpie because... I mean, I, I would. There, there are authors that I wish that I had. Like, I would like sort of focus on and like just read that and all that kind of thing. But I do want to to read as widely as possible and to read as many voices as possible. And in terms of the fifth and final question on the podcast, it's either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. I suppose again, it goes back to your interest or your passion for music. And in fact, you read a lot of nonfiction music books. And the book you've chosen is a book by Lucy O'Brien called She-Bop, and I think it's the definitive history of women in popular music. I have just, I've only read the first chapter so far. I think I think this is going to be a book that I savour throughout the year, rather than like sort of read, like just turn the pages one by one in one period. I think it's a book that I'll probably read throughout the year and read a chapter because each chapter is it's kind of um, chronological, but it's also thematic as well. And it talks about different eras of music and the pioneering women that, that were involved in that. Because a lot, I mean, it's true to say that, sadly, that a lot of the time women's contribution to um, culture gets a little bit airbrushed out. And I even th- I thought I might do an 101 of women in music. Maybe that was that could have been a possible other book for me to write. But I kind of think reading this that I don't really need to because this Lucy Bryan book is, <laughs> is the one that you should just go to. It's because there's just so much in it. I mean, I've only, I've only, as I say, I've only read the first chapter, which looked at the blues and jazz era. Because I've, I've actually had a really good 2021 so far with reading. And the book that I was, had read before this book, and I did it on purpose, was to read Jackie Kay's book about Bessie Smith, um, the blues singer. So and this first chapter talks about Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, Ida Cox, Memphis Minnie, and then goes on to like Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think now that I've read that chapter, the thing for me to do now is to just go and listen to the music and explore the music a little bit more. And I'll have another book on the go. And then once I've sort of listened to the music and, and all that kind of stuff and got sort of really into it in a sort of more immersive way, then I'll read the next again chapter. And I think I'll probably do that throughout the year. That's a brilliant idea, actually, because it's more than just sitting and reading from page one to page 300 yeah. or whatever. That I, because I suppose the whole point, I'm guessing the whole point, that that would be what Lucy O'Brien would be wanting you to do anyways. Yeah. To, to obviously find out the story, but part of the story is the, the music they created. So if, mm-hmm. if you go and then listen to it, she's done her job. Yeah, and this that was the kind of project I like to do as well. You know, <laughs> I did the same recently a few years ago with, have you ever read Bob Stanley's Yeah, Yeah, Yeah book, The History of Modern Pop? And it goes from the 1950s up to the present day. And I did a similar thing with that as well, just sort of getting really into the pop music of each era as I was reading through that book. It's just, I think it's a great way to read books about music. It makes it just become more alive. 
Yeah, um, I, I can I get in touch with you about your book? I, I think that would be the reaction from people. Certainly, my reaction when I read your book was then to go and start listening to the Beatles songs again. I mean, there was always any sort of playlist I've made up. There's always one or two there, but then to actually go and sit and listen to some of the albums, I think that's again from your book. That's the success of that is then that people will go and do that. Yeah, I hope so because I mean, it's not as if the Beatles, Paul and Ringo, need more money or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but um. To the, the sheer joy of the Beatles. I mean, they did sad songs and, and all that kind of thing. And, and their story isn't entirely just happy, happy, happy. But generally, that is the feeling that I get when I listen to Beatle music, is just joy. Just the joy of exploring, the joy and curiosity of the world. I just find that in Beatles music. Because they were the ultimate curiosity seekers too. Like I think that's the reason why they changed so much in such a short time, is that they never, ever wanted to repeat themselves. I mean, see what we were saying earlier on. That's why I, I never really... When people say they don't like the Beatles, I just don't buy that. As a, because, <laughs> as you say, from when they start to when they finish and everything in between, for me, there's something for everyone. There really is. There really is. And from all ages as well. <laughs> like, I don't know about you. I was put, like... Because, as I say, when I'm like, we're all in a Beatles world now, like, we learned Beatles songs at school and nursery. Like, we not just yet, like, All Together Now, Yellow Submarine, When I'm 64. Like, I remember singing those songs in school. Lily, Lily the Pink, which, it, like, which is like Mike McCartney, was in Scaffold as well. And Yeah, I remember uh, that we, from Family Parties. Because the other book like, I was going to make, I know you, you mentioned you read a lot of music books. The one that I read recently, which is the one that's always stuck in my mind, is a book by a guy called Dylan Jones about uh-huh. Wichita Lineman. That uh, is one of my favourite songs of all time, and I have that book, but I've not read it yet. It was one of those ones where I was just in the bookshop, and I it was obviously the title, because I just absolutely love the song. And well, I got the book, and I just I absolutely adored the book. And I've told people who I know love the song as well, and... I've said, oh, I need to read that. I need to get that off you. And I just, I'm refusing to to loan it to anybody just in in case I don't get it back. Because at the moment, I'm just not ready to part with it. No, I understand that. I understand that totally. No, I'll definitely, hopefully this year, I'll get around to reading that. Because as as I say, it is one of my favourite songs too. It's such a perfect, perfect song. Because there's a great, um, I think there's a, I'm not sure if it's Radio 4, it might be soul music. I think it might be, but they just, they pick a song. So, for example, the song like The Witcher to a Line Man, or they did a great one on The Cure song, Boys Don't Cry, and they tell the story of the song, sometimes talking to the people who have either written the song or performed, but then get people, different people's stories on what it meant to them. And there's yeah. a great one, if you just did a search, uh, Radio 4, Witcher to a Line Man, it's a brilliant podcast on that song and what it meant to different people, and it's a great, just half an hour of great listening. Yeah, I would like to see more books do that as well, because that's the great thing about um, music is that it is an inexhaustible subject. And like, you know, like how particularly over the last few years or so, like nature writing has, has been a real vogue in nature writing and particularly about the writer's relationship with nature. And I think books about the writer's relationship with a particular song or a particular group, like to be a fan like because I, I I like I know that feeling and appreciate that feeling. I think I think we're ripe for more music books to explore that area a little bit more. Commissioners, are you listening? <laughs> but, well, do you know I think that's why the the one on one format works really well because as you were you were explaining earlier on of how you just sat down and think right if I can list 101 different chapters for the Beatles book I'll do it and I'm thinking because as I say I've said many times on the podcast I'm a massive fan of Duran Duran and. I, 
I'd once did, did a you book. Did you write a book about Duran Duran? Well, it was a book of short stories, and every uh-huh. short story was the title of, of one of their songs. And right. so immediately I'm thinking, right, if can I think of 101 different things for... Because I just think it's the sort of book, you know, if nothing else, somebody writes that book, I'm going to read it and absolutely love yeah. it. So I think for any subject, especially if you get somebody who, for example, the Beatles, if you've got that kind of passion and knowledge, you know, you're halfway there to producing a really good book. What was that about Duran Duran that... Well, do you know, I think it was just the age I was at. So they 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 would have brought their first song out in 1981. So I would have been just about 14, roughly. Just so going in, so it'd be at that time where I was just too young, I think, for when punk had, right. had started. And, and even the jam, the jam were just in the point of splitting up at the point where I was kind of getting into my own music. So uh-huh. it was kind of that new romantics. That was a first sense of identity. And, and I've, I've kind of stuck with them. I think they're actually, you know, they were kind of boy band type at the time, but I think they're better musicians than right really good songs yeah and and the they have a point of view as well like i i i I like duran duran as well and but they know their stuff as well like they they know a lot about culture and because a lot of the the new romantic bands they were maybe a little bit poo-pooed for being a bit like lightweight and frou-frou but but actually there was a lot of depth like historical depth in their cultural knowledge that informed the their aesthetic and their music and all that kind of thing so uh, yeah, I know I, ha- I have a, a lot of time for for the new romantics. Yeah, but uh, sadly we're we're just about out of time for the podcast, Vicky. I have to say it's I've really enjoyed chatting to you. I I did absolutely love your book, and I would recommend yeah. the Beatles One Hundred One to anyone, whether you're a Beatles fan or not. I think it's a it's a cracking book just to to read and find out about the band, and then go and listen to them. Thank you so much, and thank you for your tweets at the weekend as well. That like every little helps, especially with the bookshops not being open. <laughs> absolutely but thanks again for joining me on the podcast oh it's been lovely it's been a pleasure thanks for listening to the read all about it podcast and i'd love to hear what you thought about it you can get in touch via twitter at read all about 20 on instagram at read all about it podcast or you can send an email to read all about it at paulcuddehy.com if you've enjoyed the podcast subscribe leave a review and spread the word if you haven't enjoyed it say nothing to anybody But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.